As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 189 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today and thank you, Frederick, for reminding me that I keep forgetting to say my name. So, yep, I'm Adam and here we go with today's story from the south coast of England. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible story. It's a terrible story and it poses lots of questions. Some of them aren't answered and some we try to answer, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, uh, especially the new supporters of this exclusive club. That's Marie Davis, Felix, Sydney Dark, Rachel Adams, Lisa Kelly, Janine Payne, Hayley T, Brooke Lee and Hannah State. Thank you all so much for your fabulous support. A quick reminder that I am talking serial killers with crime journalist Chris Summers on Thursday the 25th of June. Chris was in court for the trials of Steve Wright and the Wests, so it'll be fascinating to hear his insights. Get your tickets today at UKTrueCrime.com. And for those of you who've contacted me about football, yep, thanks for that. After the nightmare at Cardiff yesterday, probably the less said about the mighty league United, the better. But in Bielsa, we trust to deliver the future. No adverts today, so let's set some context for the story by looking at the news and music we were listening to and see if you can guess the month and the year. Top of the UK music chart was Shakira, featuring Wyclef Jean with Hips Don't Lie. And after my eating and drinking during lockdown, boy, do I know it. In the US, it was Fergie with London Bridge, and topping the Australian album charts was some super heavy stuff for your metalheads out there. That's right, it was the soundtrack to High School Musical. This month saw actor Sylvester Stallone and former heavyweight boxing contender Chuck Wepner settle lawsuits out of court for an undisclosed sum. Wepner claimed that he was the inspiration for the Rocky movies. The Wally of the Brolly, Steve McLaren, took charge, if that's the way to describe it, of the England football team. And in London, detectives announced a UK-US terrorist plot involving planes and the measures around liquids taken to lessen this threat is why flying can be so tiresome nowadays. And it's not going to get any better anytime soon, is it? And in UK true crime news, the UK government announced plans to make the possession of violent pornographic images illegal and punishable by up to three years in prison. Did you get the month and year? It was August 2006. Today's story starts on the east coast of the Isle of Wight in Bembridge. On a lovely sunny day, I've had some wonderful days sailing there. It's a fun place to watch people of all ages enjoying the harbour. 
Another fine place to sail is Dartmouth on the beautiful southwest coast of England and 36-year-old Rupert Saunders was looking forward to taking part in the annual Dartmouth Royal Regatta in the summer of 2006. Don't know if you've been there or not, but it's a fine event with great sailing and legendary social events. Rupert, a city banker who lived in Tooting, South London, owned a 26-foot classic yacht called Uzo with his brother Jamie, which they kept in Bembridge. The family knew the area well, also owning a house in Bembridge. They'd owned the boat since their father Charles brought it in 1980, and it was a beautiful boat lovingly looked after. Rupert was a highly experienced sailor, having loads of practical experience, as well as having trained as a skipper, yachtmaster and maritime radio operator. On Sunday the 20th of August, he headed south from London to the Isle of Wight and Bembridge. From there, he planned to sail west to Dartmouth, and with fair conditions forecast, the trip would take him about 8-10 to hours. His brother Jamie had been due to join him, but then at late notice he couldn't make the trip as he had to hold back some annual leave for his wedding. But Rupert was joined by some good friends, and they were looking forward to having a great time. One was 35-year-old Jason Downer, who Rupert met at school and was now a city banker. He'd sailed on Uzo countless times, and was a competent sailor himself having trained as a skipper, and he regularly raced a 38-foot yacht. They were joined by 36-year-old James Meeby, a sales manager who also lived in Tooting. He and Rupert had met at university. Initially fearful of the sea, he had overcome this, and like Jason Downer, had trained as a skipper, and was a regular competent racer on a number of yachts. The three friends had all raced at the Dartmouth Regatta before, and away from sailing, they all liked to ski, and were also big fans of the Harlequins rugby union team based in Twickenham. They were a fun bunch, sharing loads of banter and enjoying both the sailing and each other's company tremendously. They were competitive and took their racing seriously, but also enjoyed the partying at regattas such as Dartmouth. But like all the most competent of sailors, the three were always respectful of the sea. Rupert was very safety conscious, insisting that life jackets were always worn by all the crew on Uzo, even below the decks, and there was a strict ban on drinking alcohol on board. The group arrived in Bembridge around lunchtime on the 20th of August, but were unable to sail as they'd missed the high tide, and there was no water where Uzo was moored. So the three friends visited the local yacht chandelers, where they bought some equipment for the boat before making their final preparations for their trip in the regatta. If, like me, you are a keen sailor, you'll know that any time you aren't actually out in your boat, you are spending money on it. They finally set sail that evening at about 8.30, heading south along the east coast of the Isle of Wight towards St Catherine's Point in the open sea. At first it was a struggle against the flooding tide, but in Sandown Bay at 10.30pm the tide turned, and from there they made good progress out into the open sea of the English Channel. Just after 10.30, Jason Downer texted his partner, saying that they'd started their trip and he was about to go down to get some rest. This was standard procedure for the crew on the Uzo, where the normal watch arrangement was for two of the crew to be in the cockpit at all times, sailing the yacht, whilst any others on board rested below. On a short trip like this, they would rotate every hour. It was really a relatively simple journey, just heading south and then throwing a right turn to head west 
and the crew generally navigated using a handheld GPS navigator and local charts, keeping a note of the yacht's position every 30 minutes in a logbook. But that text from Jason to his partner was the last anyone ever heard from the three friends. It was just before midday on the 22nd of August, 40 hours after the yacht had left Bembridge, that a fishing boat recovered from the sea the body of a man around 10 miles south of the Isle of Wight coast. He was wearing a manually inflated life jacket and yachtsman's clothing. There was no ID on the body, so the emergency services released a description of the man, hoping that someone would come forward. And later that evening, a woman contacted the police and informed them that she was concerned as the description sounded like her partner, James Neeby, and she hadn't heard from him since he left Bembridge aboard the Uzo. The next morning after a sleepless night, she made the terrible trip to Gosport Hospital on the south coast, where sadly she was able to confirm that the body found was indeed James. Concerned for the other two friends on board the Uzo, the emergency services then began a large-scale search for the boat and the sailors. And at nine o'clock in the evening of the 23rd of August, the bodies of Jason Downer and Rupert Saunders were also recovered, again with their life jackets inflated, from the sea about nine miles further west from where the body of James was found. But despite a thorough search of the area, there was no sign at all of the boat, the Uso. Quite what had happened was unclear. Had there been an explosion on board, this seemed unlikely, as there was nothing about the bodies to suggest this. Had the yacht suffered a technical failure? Possible, but unlikely on such a well-cared-for yacht in the relatively benign conditions. No distress call was made from the yacht, which led postcards to believe that the boats may have been in a collision with a larger vessel. An Isle of Wight coastguard, James Bryan Taylor, said, We can only make the assumption that the missing yacht has been involved in some catastrophic collision. The parents of the three men released a statement talking of their devastation. They said, Rupert, James and Jason are a group who have been close friends for many years, going back to school and university days. All three had a zest for life and were following testing professional careers, along with a love for sports and sailing. They were all competent qualified sailors and were on board Rupert's 26-foot yacht Uzo, which he shared with his brother Jamie. They were all loving family members who would be dearly missed. The Marine Accident Investigation Branch, MAIB or MABE as I will call them, using various forms of data, was able to identify all of the large vessels which had been in the area close to the Uzo on the night of the 20 21st of August, and they were asked to give their voyage data to MABE investigators. And one in particular interested the investigators. The information from one of the vessels, the P&O Car Ferry, Pride of Bilbao, revealed that she'd been involved in an incident with a small yacht about six miles south of St Catherine's Point early in the morning of the 21st of August. This yacht surely had to have been the Uzo. Had this collision led to the sinking of the Uzo and the deaths of the three men? The Pride of Bilbao is one of the largest ferries operating in UK waters. She provides a scheduled service between Portsmouth and Bilbao in Spain throughout the year, usually leaving Portsmouth at 9.15pm and arriving in Spain 36 hours later. The vessel had been operating on this route for about 13 years. On the evening in question, 
the ferry had been delayed leaving Portsmouth for a couple of hours due to technical issues. It wouldn't have been the first time that this giant car ferry had almost been involved in an accident with a yacht. In August 2000, just after 10pm, the ferry was heading for a collision with a small craft until it changed its course less than one mile from the yacht, and these things aren't manoeuvrable vessels. The crew of the yacht in question told of their horror as they saw this huge ferry speeding directly at them, and they shone a light on their sails to alert the ferry to their presence, and it was this that got them spotted and caused the ferry to change course. But even from a mile out, the two vessels passed within a worrying 200 yards of each other. The Pride of Bilbao later apologised for the incident, saying it had lost a yacht on its radar. Two weeks after the Uzo disappeared, 61-year-old Michael Hubble, the Pride of Bilbao's 61-year-old second officer, and the officer of the watch when Uzo went missing, was arrested on suspicion of manslaughter. He had spent his life at sea, beginning his career at the age of 16, as an ordinary seaman, then able seaman on board vessels sailing worldwide. He then switched to sailing on cargo vessels around the UK coast. From 1987 he had sailed on a number of cross-channel ferries before retiring in 2006, but though he no longer worked for P&O as a permanent member of staff, he'd worked on board via an agency, and that is why he was on the bridge on the night in question. Six months after the alleged collision with the Uzo, he was further charged with breaching Section 58 of the Merchant Shipping Act for, and I quote, conduct endangering ships, structures or individuals. In October 2007, his trial began at Winchester Crown Court. For an account of the court case, I will draw heavily on an excellent article in the Financial Times by Tom de Costella in August 2008. Like all my sources, you can find this in the show notes. The dispute in the court case was simple. The prosecution suggested the ferry had not seen the yacht and had either collided with it or passed too close so that the bow waves created by the powerful ferry would have swamped and sunk the Uzo. The defence agreed that the ferry had been involved in an instance, but with another yacht. It had been recorded in the ship's log, but they argued that this boat wasn't the Uzo. They believed that another large vessel must have collided with Uzo elsewhere in the English Channel. The vessel in question was a tanker called the Crescent Bjorn, which on the evening in question was sailing east to west across the Channel and the defence found an expert, Chris Thompson, a lecturer in marine simulation at South Tyneside College, able to suggest that Uzo could have been close to the tanker, and it was a collision between those two boats that led to the loss of the Uzo. But despite all the arguments made in court, the pivotal point in the trial came when the captain of the Crescent Bjorn admitted that he had not had the required lookouts on deck that evening, so he'd been breaking the law. He couldn't say for sure that his craft hadn't collided with the Uzo. Some observers at the trial felt that this news meant that Michael Hubble could not be found guilty, and indeed, after a six week trial, the jury acquitted Hubble of manslaughter. It was unable to reach a verdict on the charge of having put the men's lives in danger. Michael Hubble released a statement following the trial saying, The families of the men have my deepest sympathy but the demise of those men was nothing to do with me or any action of mine or the pride of Bilbao. 
so legally nobody was responsible for the death of the three men. However, in April 2007, the Marine Accident Investigation Branch, MABE, published their independent report, which can't be used for legal purposes. It's only to prevent future accidents. They concluded the following. After careful analysis of the facts, the MABE is of the firm opinion that the yacht was Uzo and the Pride of Bilbao had collided with her or passed so close that she had been swamped or capsized by the vessel's wash. A person close to the MABE told Tom de Castella, No one can persuade me that there were two yachts similarly in distress within 10 miles of each other at the same time. It just isn't credible. But what about the Crescent Bjorn? Didn't the court case show that it wasn't looking where it was going? The source said, The bridge was manned. The officer of the watch was there, and he'd have been doing collision avoidance and navigation. All we are saying is that they didn't have a second person on the bridge. The MABE had far more material and expertise than was presented at the court case, and crucially they'd no agenda. Based on lots of available evidence, De Castella put together what could have happened if MABE were correct and the Uzo did collide with the ferry. Approaching 1am, the Uzo's crew would have seen the ferry approaching them, and being local sailors, they probably knew exactly which ferry it was. The ferry would have been about a kilometre off their port side, but they wouldn't have realised that once the ferry had passed the Isle of Wight, it would very slowly turn west, slowly so that passengers on board did not feel any discomfort. And this process of turning took three minutes, so it would not have been apparent to the crew of the Uzo until it was heading straight for them. And the ferry then increased its power, heading full steam ahead. We then head to the bridge of the Pride of Bilbao, where the crew didn't see any yachts on their radar systems. But at 1.07am the lookout spotted a white light on the starboard bow, almost certainly the light of the Uzo. The second officer, Michael Hubble, steered the ferry to starboard in an attempt to avoid a collision. When they then saw a light astern after this, it was confirmation in the mind of Hubble that the yacht was clear of his stern and it was safe for him to bring the vessel back around onto her original course. He returned to the autopilot joystick and input the original course to Spain. The MABE report suggests it's possible that the Uzo's light stayed on for a while, despite the boat being in distress, with, possibly, her crew already washed overboard. Seeing that light certainly did not confirm that her crew were safe. They strongly recommended that a large vessel should never assume the small craft is safe just from seeing a light astern. The investigators believe the Pride of Bilbao passed within 10 metres of the yacht. If we just pause for a moment here to consider the sheer size of the ships, the Uzo, 25 foot, and the Pride of Bilbao, 176 metres in length, 32 metres wide, more than 30 metres high, with a gross tonnage of almost 38,000 four engines producing almost 32,000 horsepower would have made the most terrible noise as it approached a yacht at around 21 knots. Can you imagine this in a quiet, dark night? Experts suggested that the sheer wall of water from the ferry's bow wave would have crashed over the yacht's low stern and straight down the hatchway, which should have been open on such a pleasant evening. Water in the boat makes it unstable, 
And you know how big the waves are from boats when they wash up on the beach. So imagine these waves at close quarters hitting an already unstable boat that would have been catastrophic. And now unstable, the Uzo would have then been hit by more waves from the ferry's wash. The MAVE estimated that just 10-30% to of the hull being flooded would be enough for a capsize and it's been suggested it could have sunk in just a few minutes. And what happened next is straight out of your worst nightmares. The three sailors were all in the water with their life jackets on watching the ferry sail away. There are many stories of cruise ships returning after a passenger has gone overboard and saving them. The men would have hoped that the ferry would turn around and effect a rescue. Or maybe they'd have alerted the Coast Guard and they could have expected to hear a helicopter approaching. The Coast Guard later said they could have been on the scene in 50 minutes and the Benbridge lifeboat could have been there in just over an hour. And if the ferry had stopped and used its lights to illuminate the water, there was a good chance the men would have been found and saved. But when nothing happened, what options were there? They all knew that the tide was pushing them out to sea and trying to swim against it was futile. So it was just a matter of staying alive and hoping and praying that they'd be recovered from what are, after all, busy shipping lanes. The trial showed that Rupert Saunders and James Downer had survived for at least three hours in the water before drowning. James Meeby remained alive for at least 12 hours before dying from hypothermia. It is likely they'd have tried to stay together, as there was more chance of being found that way. Experts say their bodies would have rapidly adjusted to the cold. The water temperature at the time was about 18 degrees. And initially, the fall in their body temperature would have taken some time. After this, reflex shivering would have started after a while, at first in short bursts, and then continuously. And with a force five breeze and swell, the men would have swallowed a lot of seawater. As James Meeby survived so much longer, it seems this was due to his life jacket being tightened correctly. Did he watch his friends die? And how would he have felt seeing the light of the morning after surviving that terrible, terrible cold night? As first light approached on that summer morning, he might have thought that there was a good chance that rescue would arrive, but it never came, and he succumbed to hypothermia around lunchtime. P&O has never made any contact at all with the families of the three men, with a media officer saying, I think the view was that once Mr Hubble was cleared, P&O's connection to the case ended. And as for Michael Hubble, he never worked for P&O again. And the ferry itself has returned close to where it was built in Finland, now travelling from Stockholm to St Peter's in Tallinn. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Let's be clear that the charges made against Michael Hubble were about as serious as you can get for a seafarer, leaving another sailor to die. I know it's a push to call the Daily Star a newspaper, but their headline was typical. It said, Ferry's officer left three boat pals to die. Whatever us lay people think of Michael Hubble's decisions that evening, his actions after the near miss with the yacht, Uzo or any other, in his mind, were absolutely the right actions. And the jury had enough doubt not to convict, so he must have faced an absolute nightmare at the time of the trial. But you can't help thinking, can you, that they should have stopped after such a close incident 
and that would almost certainly have led to the three sailors surviving. But of course our sympathy lies with the families and friends of the three men who died on the Uzo. Three innocent men enjoying life to the full, tragically cut down at their peak. And the ferry was delayed by two hours that evening. Another 30 seconds earlier or later, and the accident wouldn't have happened. And as us fans of true crime know, such can be the margins between life and death. When you finish listening, take a look online at the pictures of the men at another sailing regatta, enjoying life and having fun with everything to live for. Their deaths are such a tragedy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group. To buy your ticket for the Serial Killers Talk on the 25th of June, please pop over to uktruecrime.com or you can get your ticket cheap at patreon.com slash uktruecrime as well as listen to 43 bonus episodes, watch a live recording of the show, see all the stats and access a Facebook-only group please just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Thanks again for listening to the 37th most popular true crime podcast in the UK. Take it easy out there, and most of all, despite all the others, do please stay classy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.